You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our series in the Beatitudes. We'll go through the Beatitudes before we return to the Psalms. And this morning, we are looking at verse 6. But I will, as has been the custom, begin at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, that is Jesus. He opened up his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. By way of just review and reminder, last week we, of course, focused on verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I tried to kind of put handles on the word meekness for you to give you a sense of what it meant. We talked about how it did not mean weak, but rather meant in control of uh, passions. Uh, so, So one who's in control of their passions, in control, you might say, of their emotions. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. We talked about how meekness is perhaps best manifested as a kind of steadiness, a trust in God, and a humility before God. And so the meek man is humble before God, even as he is bold before men. And so then a question that might have occurred to you, and I think we, we addressed it last Sunday, but we'll just, we'll just entertain it once more. So does being in control of, of passions, does meekness as it is exemplified through... Um, through, through self-control, let's say, does it mean you're, you're never uh, passionate about anything, never longing, never yearning for anything? And the answer is no, because that's what we learn when we arrive at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so there is, even in the heart of the meek person, the meek Christian, the blessing of hungering, which sounds odd, the, 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 the blessing of, of yearning, longing for righteousness and the promise that that longing, that that hunger will be filled and answered. So what is righteousness briefly? I mean, you, you, you hear the word right in there and, and that is, I think, a good place to start. When we speak of righteousness, we are speaking of rightness or uprightness that has a moral quality as well as a spiritual quality, a quality of innocence uh, as well as a, a quality of just goodness and rightness. Things are as they should be for the righteous man. I don't mean uh, necessarily that he has all the things that he uh, uh, wants in life, but in, in, terms of, in terms of his behavior, in terms of the posture of his heart before men and before God, righteousness is is, is rightness. Things are right with him as they should be. For God's righteousness, so we speak of, I mean, we speak of human righteousness, we speak of God's righteousness as well. And for God, rightness or righteousness is always understood through the lens of his covenant. In other words, through the lens of his promises or his word. And so if you were to ask the question, why is God righteous? The answer would be because God always does what he ought to do. Okay? God always does what he ought to do, and he always keeps his promises, that is, faithfulness. So, 
So as we begin to get at a definition here, righteousness and what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to, to long, to yearn that my life and my actions and my thoughts and my behavior and my attitudes, all of it mixed together, would be in line with what God calls good and right. Okay? For my good to be God's good. Rather, instead of inventing my own good, it is the definition of good and the practice of it that I've received from another. In other words, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to seek after God Himself. Now, how do I know that? The part, of the, uh, part of the way that I know that is because in Scripture, when, uh, uh, when, when the Bible, when God in, in His Word speaks of hungering and thirsting it's very often a hunger and a thirst for God himself and so hunger and thirst language after God I think Jesus is using that same language here to speak of longing for righteousness what am I what am I talking about well we find uh, uh, we, we've sorry I'm ahead of, I'm ahead of my ahead of my own notes when the Old Testament uses the language of hunger and thirst for example God himself is often the referent. Can we, can we go there, please, to Psalm 42, verse 2? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When shall I, I mean, that's, that's courtroom language. When shall I come and appear before God and, and be declared righteous? John 7.37 in the New Testament, Jesus uses the same language. When he says on the last day of the feast, or John tells us on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Right? Both of these texts, the Psalm 42 and the John 7, speak of the hunger in our souls for, I'd say, meaning, and I would say rest. And both passages point us to God himself. Now, hunger and thirst are not unfamiliar metaphors to us. Right? Metaphors for, for longing and yearning, I mean. They, it, they show up all the time in, in uh, love songs, both decent ones and sappy ones. It shows up in poetry as well. People speak of a hunger for love, a hunger for purpose or for power, a hunger for money even, and, and so on. But I would think the reason, or before we get there, I would think we should ask what is the reason that Jesus uses this language of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. He could have said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness. That would make sense, but he didn't. He could have said, blessed are those who seek after righteousness. Or even just a plain old ordinary who want to be righteous. But he didn't say that. He uses the language of hunger and thirst. So I'm going to start by asking why. And I want us to think about that, to meditate on that for a moment. Why the language of hunger and thirst to talk about righteousness? Well, think about being hungry. Some of you are already there. And I hope to finish up in time for you to beat the Pentecostals to outlaws. But hunger, <laughs> hunger is connected to appetite, right? No big brain work there. Hunger is connected to appetite. And what I want you to understand this morning 
is that when we talk about appetites, whether it be appetite for food or appetite for anything else in life, everything from healthy appetite to addiction, I want you to know this. Appetites are cultivated. Some of you, you've never been told that before, and maybe you disagree with it. I'm, we're going to explore it together, but I, I want to tell you that this is something that pastorally I want you to, to get your hands around this morning and understand that the appetites in your heart and in your body are cultivated things. <clears throat> Hunger for food obviously happens regardless of your will on the matter. You get hungry. But not all appetites function that way. When it comes to the food, what you eat over a period of time actually shapes your appetite. I know this is hard to believe because we're just, you don't really think about it, you're not conscious of it, but the stuff you eat and the stuff you keep eating shapes your cravings, okay? Just like the stuff you don't eat will shape your cravings. I have never had <laughs> the pleasure of eating, what's it called, um, Marmite, Vegemite, this Australian concoction that, uh, yeah, uh, all I know is that universally I've heard it's disgusting unless you're Australian and you've grown up eating it, okay? Because it, it's a cultivated appetite. Please don't anybody bring me Vegemite or Marmite. I, I'm okay with living not knowing. But that, this is true with all of our appetites. It's true of the appetite, uh, so let's talk about appetites in the heart. The appetite for revenge. It's true of sexual appetites. It's true of the appetite for bitterness or for forgiveness, if we can speak in such a way. A lot of times, you, you, you cultivate a taste for being quick to forgive or quick to become bitter. It's true of spiritual appetites, like reading Scripture, like prayer. Now, I'm, I'm discovering this right now with food. I, I told some of you on a Wednesday night a few weeks ago that I've never liked olives, but I've been on a quest to discipline my taste buds and to cultivate a new appetite to enjoy olives. I'd like to report on my progress. It's going well. At first, I wasn't sure it was going to work, but it really has. I've come around to enjoying Kalamata olives and the, the green olives that are stuffed with cheese. Those are great. I've not yet come around to black olives. Those have taken a lot more work than I thought, although I'm reliably informed that those don't count. They're the worst members of the olive family. But my point is, is that six months ago, say, I couldn't even handle the smell. And today, I'm able to enjoy them alongside other food that I like. How is that possible? It's possible because appetites are cultivated, okay? Now, our, our culture, the reason why it can sometimes be hard for us to believe this is that our culture's perception of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to here blend the words, take a little bit of, of linguistic liberty, the word appetite and the word desire. There's lots of intersection there. Our culture sees appetite and desire in two significant ways. First, that it is static and cannot be changed. Whatever your appetites and desires are, they are not changing. They're going to stick with you forever. And second, that they are things that happen to you, right? So you just kind of wake up a certain morning desiring or having an appetite for certain things, or maybe it's been with you from day one when you were born. That's just the way it is. I'm not endorsing this. I'm saying these are two common cultural understandings of how appetite and desire function. So uh, 
I mean, so the way this is expressed is some people are born with certain desires and there's nothing you can do about them. You're born with a, with a type in terms of who you're attracted to. You're born liking certain foods and certain kinds of music and so on. Or you're born with certain physical or sexual attractions. Nothing to be done about those at all. But here's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount telling us that only people who deeply feel a certain kind of hunger will be satisfied. And, and so... It's it's not a huge leap from the text to say then that you and I are being called to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. But how can Jesus say that if appetites are not cultivated? How How can Jesus command me to feel a certain appetite for something if appetites are things that happen to me rather than something that I cultivate, you see? To be clear, by the way, The Bible's answer to that is not that desire doesn't feel that way a lot of times. I think very much we could all say that desires or appetites feel very much like they simply happen to us with or without our consent, with or without our permission, and that they exercise enormous power over us in the meanwhile, and that they often feel unalterable. Existentially, it does seem like your appetites and desires are things that happen to you rather than things you cultivate. I don't think that Christians should object to that, that that that's sort of the experience of things. But I would say that we as a culture have forgotten something that the ancients knew. The ancients knew that desires were cultivated, sometimes intentionally, sometimes accidentally. Your expectations and hope for life, for example, the, the, the things you expect from yourself and others, And the things you long for in life are greatly shaped by the stories you read. Did you know that? The stories you read. Or, more likely, the stories you watch on a screen. Your physical and sexual appetites are radically shaped by the fantasies you indulge in and the longings you meditate on. Even the food you like is in large part, as I said, shaped by the food you continue to eat. And so to illustrate this, I want you to imagine a young boy, a real pyromaniac type, likes to play with fire. And one day, unbeknownst to mom and dad, he was out in the backyard with some matches and is putting flame to to this twig or to that stick, to that little bit of grass. And at one point, even though he was quite sure he had put out all the sparks on this little patch of grass, he turns around and sees that the bush behind him has caught on fire. This bush is loaded with beautiful, dark green leaves. So it starts burning pretty good. So much so that the fence behind it starts to catch on fire. You see, that fence is, uh, is old wood and very dry. And that fire begins moving at a frightening pace. And the young boy is frozen in fear. Just fight, flight, or freeze, and he's frozen, doesn't know what to do. Thankfully, Dad looks out the window just in time to run out and turn the garden hose on and save most of the fence and some of the bush. Now, what caused the fire what caused the damage imagine we got a group of people together to answer that question and they all came up with different answers his parents inattention the dry heat the leaves on the bush and how healthy they were the age and dryness of the wood the sparks left unattended the little boy's irresponsibility the panic that set in that caused him to freeze which one is it 
all of that certainly played a part. All of that, we've got all these contributing factors, right? Now, we might go first to the boy's irresponsibility, but you have to at least admit that if any of those things I had listed in the story had been different, that it would have played out differently. Now, now, that's meant to be an analogy. Let's, let's apply it. If there's an angry outburst and a screaming match between husband and wife, and it results in ugly, cutting words that wound the heart and cannot be easily forgotten, maybe things turn physically violent. Is it because of whatever just happened two minutes ago? Or is it because of 15 years of carefully cultivated bitterness? Same principle in, uh, in adultery and extramarital affairs. Does, does the desire to commit adultery followed by the act of adultery, does that just happen out of nowhere? It is the fruit of carefully cultivated and protected and probably kept secret desires that have been allowed to flourish. It's easy to see how a lot of temptations can be hard to fight because they kind of have all kinds of tentacles. And there are plenty of temptations to face, but I don't think, as we, as we talk about temptation, we want to make sure that we're also talking about desires and appetites and the, the images and videos and songs that you're feeding on and putting into your mind, the hundreds of daydreams you entertain every day. Do you not think those things are shaping and directing your heart? So what caused the fire? All of these. This is why Jesus, I think, uses the language of hunger and thirst because that gets down to the root of your heart and your desires, doesn't it? He's not satisfied with simply saying, be righteous or do right things. Now, Jesus doesn't command us to less than that, but this beatitude shows us that he means to call us to so much more. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied, for they shall be satisfied. That's the promise. And uh, I want you to know that in, in Greek, uh, uh, they shall be satisfied is one word, okay? That's one word in Greek, and the, the, the aspect, the idea of it is it's, it's action that is happening now, yes, but also in an ongoing sense into the future. One literal rendering I found while uh, preparing for the sermon was, blessed are the ones hungering and thirsting after righteousness, for they are the ones who shall be being satisfied. <laughs> who shall be being satisfied. It's an ongoing reality. It's both going on right now and it's future-oriented as well. And this is central to, to Christianity, that our, our salvation is a past event, justification. It's an ongoing process, sanctification. One day will be completed, glorification. And it's interesting to me that this Beatitude doesn't actually end with an object. It's for they shall be filled or, or satisfied. In other words, you'd, you'd expect him to say if it had the object, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled with righteousness, probably. I'm happy to concede that based on the context and how Greek works, that's clearly implied. But I also think Jesus is saying here, blessed are those whose deepest hunger and thirst is for righteousness, 
because they are the only ones who are going to find out what it means to have their hunger satisfied. So in in other words, as I said at the beginning, hunger and thirst, common experiences to all of us. Jesus is saying if you are not hungering, and if that hunger and thirst is not oriented in the right direction, dissatisfaction is what awaits you. So what does God want us to know this morning? And what does God want us to rejoice in this morning? As I start to wrap this up. What does God want us to know and what does God want us to rejoice in? Thinking about righteousness and, and hungering and thirsting. First of all, two things that God wants you to know. Number one, that you will hunger and thirst after something. Okay? Something will motivate, orient, drive your heart, and you will pursue it. And then second, as I said before, hungers are cultivated. That is, hungers are, if you want to think about it another way, hungers are fed or they are starved. And so a lot of spiritual warfare in the Christian life is conducted by what John Owen called the mortification of sin. In other words, the starving or the killing of sin. When you meditate on your own life and the sinful desires in your own heart and the temptations that you give into so easily. Maybe, maybe for your neighbor, that's not your neighbor's struggle. And it seems really easy for your neighbor to like, not be tempted by that at all. And it drives you insane. Just how does that even work? I, I'd love to know what that's like. Mortification of sin is the way that you go to work on your own heart to, if you like, surgically remove the, the, the problems. When you, when you meditate on your own life and the sinful desires of your own heart, ask yourself, what are, the, uh, what are the food sources or energy sources of these desires? What's keeping the desires alive? Where are they getting their strength? Where are they getting their sustenance? What am I feeding them and, keep, and how am I keeping them alive? And how can I, if you'll pardon the metaphor, how can I cut off the life support for these sinful desires? But it's not just mortifying or starving sin. God also calls us to be strengthened positively by his good gifts. That will, by the way, help to cultivate desires in us. This is why we make a practice of regular reading of the Bible and regular prayer. If you need a place to start with this, uh, I mean, we've, we've talked before about the, uh, uh, the To the Word Bible reading plan that Marissa and I have been using. Uh, if, if reading plans are difficult for you to get going with, here's, here's a neat trick. 15 minutes, read your Bible. 15 minutes, pray. Just start there. If, you're not already, if, if, if that's not already a pattern in your life, it will revolutionize some things for you, I promise. Just 15 minutes in Scripture, 15 minutes in prayer. Well, how do I know if it's been 15 minutes? Well, set a timer if you have to. I don't care. That feels very unspiritual, doesn't. I do it. I set timers. Um, and it, it, that, for me, that just helps me to stay focused on what I'm doing. It's a weird thing. If I know I'm being timed, I'm like extra focused. It works for me. I offer it to you. <laughs> but patterns, sorry, but patterns of, of, of prayer and of Scripture do go to work on your heart. 
and get inside your heart and begin to transform not just what you believe cognitively, but the very ways you think and feel. And over time, right down to the things you want and desire. I mean, think about the act of prayer. What is it that prayer does? Prayer pulls me out of my own self and shines a spotlight on the things I desire. Why? Well, because I'm asking for them. Because it requires also my time and my energy to pray. It makes me speak as one who belongs to Jesus, and my heart needs that. Another aspect of desire cultivation we probably don't take seriously enough is fellowship. That the things you desire are either strengthened or weakened by the people you spend time with. Okay? And if, if I can, I will speak especially to teenagers here. That is especially true of the season of li- in life you're in right now, that the people you choose to associate with will shape your loyalties and loves. Okay? So that the things that your heart is drawn to and the things you want to be loyal to and the things you want to extol and love and embrace and talk about with others, it's shaped by where you spend your time. It's true of, of, of people of all ages. The things your friends long for and chase after will probably be the things you long for and chase after. This is why, by the way, a lot of social media is so powerful in ways we are only beginning to understand. We think of social media as a tool that we use to learn about others and to communicate. It is that, but we're discovering more and more that social media shapes the way we think and the things we want and the way we speak and what we call good and true and beautiful. In other words, if you're, if you're spending hours and hours watching videos and shorts on social media, you're being trained to love certain things. I promise. You're being trained to despise certain things. You're being trained to desire certain things. And part of the joy and glory of our weekly worship together, and as well as our Wednesday night gatherings and, and other parts of, of being together through the week, is that our spirits get recalibrated. Our desires get a little bit, a little bit, the needle's moved and we get realigned so that we might call good things good and evil things evil and call ourselves hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. And so that's, that's what we're called to know. I said stuff we're called to know, uh, stuff we have to know, and then stuff we have to rejoice in. And so this is the next one, I believe. What we must rejoice in. Rejoice in the reality that the Lord Jesus means to cultivate a hunger for righteousness in you that he also means to satisfy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Jesus satisfies our hunger and our thirst for righteousness not by finally making us strong enough to always be right, but by giving us his own perfect righteousness. So you remember where the Beatitudes started, right? Poor in spirit, mourning, meekness all three of those qualities and in fact all of the beatitudes have one thing in common they are rooted in humility and surrender jesus does not offer this promise to those who hunger and thirst after righteousness in the sense of being better than all of their peers now now seeking goodness and virtue in your life is good but it's it's not Primarily what Jesus means here, to be truly righteous 
is to have Jesus' righteousness for your own. His righteousness, which, by the way, you did nothing to earn, you cannot add to it by your goodness. You cannot subtract from it by your sin. You can only receive it and desire more and more of it. And that means surrendering all the ways we try to make ourselves righteous and to build our own little kingdoms. Only Jesus himself can grow this hunger in your heart. That's part of the good news. Because if you're asking right now, what if I don't though? I mean like, what if the longer I look at my own heart, the longer it's not obvious to me that my chief hunger, my chief thirst is for righteousness. The longings that tend to motivate and direct and control my heart are for lots of other things. Congratulations. You have rightly diagnosed yourself as poor in spirit. Jesus has encouragement for you. Won't you follow the rest of the Beatitudes into these promises? Poor in spirit. What do I do with that? I mourn over it. What does that work in me? That works in me meekness. Humility before God, but boldness before men and what God says in his word. And what is that, how does that shape my heart? I am hungry and thirsty for more and more of what Jesus himself gives. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. And indeed the desire is Christ himself, that we would be like him. Now that desire can only come from him, and it can only be satisfied and filled by him. And so, to quote it again, let not conscience make you linger nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so, our Father, we long for righteousness. And we rejoice in the reality that this, this is why Jesus our Lord came. That we, that we might have through him an imputed righteousness that is not ours. Not that we earn or work up or build up, but that we receive. And so, Lord, as odd as it feels to pray, blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the as of yet unsatisfied, for they shall be satisfied. So we ask that you would make our hearts hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of Jesus and that you would place that before every other hunger in us that we might know the satisfaction that you promise. So let it be for us, for Jesus' sake. Amen.